Welcome to Surviving Society, the political podcast from a sociological perspective. We're three PhD students and every week we're going to talk about things that have annoyed us in current affairs and in life in general um, and we're just going to quickly introduce ourselves. I'm Chantal. I'm Saskia. And I'm Tiso. And uh, before we go on to the things that have uh, riled us this week, we'd just like to clarify a point that may have come up from last week's episode. I've had a few people um, pick up with me how me and Saskia laughed quite a lot when Tiso explained that he was 39. So just to clarify, Chantal's 24 and I'm 25. We are not ageist at all. It's simply because if you ever get the opportunity, the amazing opportunity to meet Tiso, he has a very, very youthful glow with the, with the trainers to match. So it's more than it's funny because we never tap into the fact that he is actually 39 because he looks about 25. Yeah, we love everyone, no matter what age they are, and the less. They're lying. <laughs> made me angry um so actually i spent a lot of time thinking about this so we've each got to come up each week with the topic that's really um got our blood pressure up and i found that every single day this week I've turned the radio on as i do in the mornings and i've just felt like absolutely bombarded with crap like you know on sunday i looked at twitter and there's people covered in blood from the um police brutality in Catalonia, in the illegal referendum, but still. Um, and then, you know, on Monday, was it Monday there was the Las Vegas shooting? Was that Sunday? It, I think we found out about it Monday morning, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like people being, so, yeah, I was in the gym listening to the sound of gunfire and they're saying two people have been killed. And I was thinking, that's not two people, that sounds like hundreds of people, and it was. Um, you know, and then like the rest of the week we've had the Tory party conference, it's just been like, what, what is going on? And I think the thing that is really driving me nuts is that feeling of just like news fatigue, and I know it's been commented on before, but just, it feels like, you know, maybe this is like I was naive, like, you know, I was quite young during the Labour government, but it felt like things were kind of going on in a way that felt like a direction that was like vaguely forward and okay yeah like the war on terror was you know repressive and stuff in its own way but you had this feeling that like the future was going to be better than the past this just felt like you know you had the financial crash the 2010 election where we had a hung parliament that just like no one was expecting and then like you have all the like drama with the coalition and then like the 2015 election where everyone was hoping for a hung parliament and we just got the tories and then after that you get like the well eu referendum yeah eu referendum with the refugee crisis and there's brexit i've just written a list here and it's just <laughs> awful <laughs> You know, like, because you've got the American election, then the French one, the German one, the one in the Netherlands. Grenfell Tower. Grenfell Tower. Like, what's happening in Spain, which just feels like the beginnings of a civil war. Like, the Scottish referendum. Like, Syria being basically a failed state. I don't know if anyone else is feeling this, and maybe it's just because, like, I do follow the news so closely, but I just feel like... It's just chaos, like everything feels like chaos. And the reason we have these 
political parties in such disarray or in such like, you know, the people who are backing Corbyn, you know, I'm, I'm willing to believe that there's like a wider cross-section of society who is behind his more kind of like socialist ideas and stuff. But when you look at the conference where they're having events like acid Corbynism and like, you know, grime stars and stuff, like backing him, that only appeals to like a really small group in society. And then the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Conservative Party conference, where it's like a group of 70-year-olds like flailing around hopelessly, unable to come up with anything that anyone thinks is a good idea at all, that's rounded off by a speech that was just so embarrassing. Like, how could anyone give such an embarrassing speech? Like, how could anyone who's a Prime Minister, just everything about it was just straight out of the thick of it. And I just feel like, like we're just all kind of collectively losing our grip and like there is no feeling the future's going to be better than the past. It's just a general feeling that the future's going to be shit and there's nothing we can do. So yeah, that is my rant for the week. But I, 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 <clears throat> I get what you're saying <clears throat> and I tend to think that it, it's, just, it's just the modern age, how, it, how it's kind of the internet and everything's kind of in your, face. in your face all the time but if you put it in kind of a historical kind of context so imagine this sense of optimism that you kind of described about in the, of, in the early 90s Tony Blair and all that imagine the sense of optimism people had coming out of World War Two. yeah the worst time in human history yeah. and then the sense of optimism so kind of captured in Harry McMillan's kind of uh, quote you've never had it so good in the 1950s it's an amazing time yeah. everyone's really happy jubilant <laughs> But then, That's why people wait for Brexit. But then, yeah. they want, they want that back tea. Well, I don't remember it as being really happy, but like they were still rationing. Like yeah, people just rationing. died. Like you know, there were bad shit. Was going on there as well. Yeah, so, but what I'm trying to say, you can tap into that sense of optimism. But then I suppose there's kind of sociologists and kind of my thing and like kind of political theory. Maybe this this sense of these this sense of badness is, is the kind of dialectic, the kind of movement of history. What do you mean by dialectic? The dialectic is a kind of Hegelian idea that the by the oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, political theorist uh, Hegel came with this idea that history moves. There's a kind of motion for history. There's yeah. a thesis and an antithesis that come together to create a synthesis. The next stage of history, the evolution, how you move things forward. So the thesis being kind of like the main. So, so at the moment, we've had the thesis, which was like the good times, but okay. now the antithesis is the kind of this negative... It's like the discontent. The discontent. So we, to get this, to get to the synthesis, you have to go through this bad stuff that we're kind of approaching, this kind of movement through history. But it doesn't mean that the synthesis is necessarily better, it's just no, like, it's that's how change happens. Exactly. So this okay. is a movement through history, so we have, you have to experience this kind of stuff. We have to go through this, and if you kind of pot it, kind of kind of track through world, 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 post-war history so you can go like I don't know like you had World War Two, yeah. and you had the kind of the good stuff like the, the 60s this, and then you had the, the kind of the bad side of the 60s kind of racial sexist feminist stuff yeah. which produced something else the 80s the kind of high high income all this money yeah. the, the, the bad side the high employment the yeah. tensions this kind of movement so you, again this is a Hegelian idea if you yeah. want to take it into kind of Marxist kind of territory this kind of dialectical materialism it's kind of you're moving through history. This is a movement. Yeah, but like we're not moving closer to communism. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I think it's quite interesting. Me and Saskia talking about this before. We feel like it's absolutely chaotic. Whereas you do understand that chaos, but because you are a little bit older than us, 
you I, I, you have a still different yeah, perspective I, on me, it. To me, it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not particularly concerning. I don't see. It, I don't see now any any worse than it was before because if you if you grew up in the fifties or sixties, seventies, you've seen stuff. Mm, yeah. You understand stuff. You understand that bad shit happens. Yeah. Stuff and stuff. People get upset, but we get over it. It's not the end of the yeah, world. Yeah, so this is the thing Sean and I was talking about. Like, you know, we like to think we're so objective and, like, you know, we're social scientists and we can, like, see stuff that maybe yeah. other people can't. But actually, it's like, you know, the, like 2010, I couldn't vote because I was, like, whatever, like a month too young. <laughs> but uh, all my friends are voting. It was really exciting. We had, like, a mock election at school and the Lib Dem was, like, absolutely smashed. Yeah. And, like, you know, like, we got so caught up in those emotions and then it's felt like that again and again and again. And like you get so involved in these causes, and then it, like, not the Lib Dems is like one of my biggest causes, but you know what I mean? Like, with Brexit and whatever, like, you know, we were just like so passionate about staying yeah. in the EU, like, regardless of the problems that are associated with the EU, that to have that fail, that feeling of like, like, desperately wanting something and then being disappointed over and over again. It's really upsetting. Like I feel like I don't know. Like maybe yeah. need to develop like a thicker skin. No, yeah. I do think I need to develop a thicker skin too. Because I've I found it so emotionally yeah. draining and so upsetting. Like, and and that's so I I probably am, I'm pretty privileged now. I'm pretty middle class. <laughs> like I'd say I've got a pretty good life. And to say that that it emotionally upsets me how some people's lives are now compared to what they could be or what they should be. It seems like I'm not, I don't have the right to feel that upset about it. So I'm sort of conflicted between feeling so enraged about how society is treating some people mm. and then feeling like, well, do I have the right to feel enraged about that? Do you mean like Grandfather Town or something? Yeah, like seeing those images, seeing the way those people have been failed, not just in the burning down the tower block, but again and again afterwards, failed and failed by institutions, by government, by councils. It's so upsetting. Well, I suppose, I think the problem is, my problem is, yeah. my problem, but as you get older, you become cynical. Yeah. The cynicism. So I understand that this, like, injustice is common. Yeah. Bad shit happens, man. And what do you do? But I think what we tap into, it's good to feel passionate about it. It's yeah. good to feel enraged about it. Because this is how movements start and this is how things get done. If, yeah. I look, if you look at the kind of mean age of people that are doing stuff that politically that gets done, they're usually in their 20s, man. Yeah. yeah. That's the time you want to burn stuff. That's where you're kind of passionate. <laughs> Unless you're Jerry Corbyn, in which case... <laughs> Enraged about stuff. The time I was most, most like a zealot, almost, was in my twenties. Yeah. My my early to late twenties. I'm very passionate about stuff. Want to go out and do stuff. Want to, and that's when you've got the energy to do stuff. But also, I think that passion is kind of frightening in like the momentum stuff around Corbett, and I think that's what makes me really suspicious of it because. Like, I was a women's officer at my university, and I really, like, the nasty side of student politics is really nasty. And when I see those people in momentum, like, because they have that energy and passion, it gets, like, so directed into, like, a hatred of everyone who disagrees with their, like, mantra. I don't know, I just feel like, I feel like so lost in all of this, like, I feel just so, like, I don't know what we should be thinking or what we should be doing or how, like, maybe you're right, we should just be, like, uh, no, being, like, stuff takes its course. No, no, like, 
I think there's, I think there's, there's, I think there's one way of being or one one way is correct, one way isn't correct. It's a balance. So what someone who's older is, is to give you context and say, listen, like calm down. But what you have is the passion that other people that lack. So people are in their thirties, forties, and they've got kids, they've got other priorities. So they're thinking more micro. But yeah. you're thinking more macro, you're thinking I want to change the world. And this is how things happen. So when I look at <clears throat> so my kind of my project, my <clears throat> my thesis is looking at kind of online radicalization, look at young young people. And it's many people in their twenties, early twenties who are becoming radicalized and want to do stuff because that's the age that you're at. So all these kind of uh, radicalizers are looking at people that are your age. Yeah. Speaking to people that are your age and saying to you, listen, like you are the changes. You are gonna change society. My time's done. Like, what do you mean? My time's done. So I don't. You're not. You're not to change stuff. You're. I'm looking to settle down. You know, getting a bit slower. Mm-hmm. This is what happens. But I don't want that to happen. Yeah. That, this is what's a natural process. Mm-hmm. Do you know? So um, I don't. Know, I think what you're saying is right. Like, yeah, be pissed off. <laughs> it's all lost. It's all lost. Be pissed off. <laughs> Be angry. This is like like any kind of youth subculture or youth movement. It starts like people in their like late teens, early twenties. Yeah. So like from the punks to the hippies or whoever. That's the time when everyone's pissed off. But then sometimes that whole like age thing it does annoy me a little bit because I feel like I am obviously still young, <laughs> but I feel like people have been telling me for most of my life, oh, you're just passionate about this because you're age, because you're age. I've been going on about injustices, my friends from school know, since we were about 10, just annoying people like, that's not fair, why is that happening? I think it's part, I do think, I can't imagine this sense of injustice, this wanting to argue for, about inequalities, not being part of my life. I just think maybe the way we direct it, hopefully it will change. You know what it comes to, it's a perspective. And yeah. you know, your perspective changes. I, my own experience, things that used to piss me off really, really badly. And I'm thinking to myself, well, well, you know what? So, really? I feel like, yeah, I think the things that maybe we need to try and do is be like less caught up in the day to day movements of the news. But the trouble yeah. is, this man, it is so like important. You feel like you can't switch it off. Like, I did have a time. I think it was like after Brexit and after Trump. I don't yeah. like where I was just like I can't listen to radio anymore because I feel so personally like bereaved yeah, that yeah. there are so many people in the world who have views that I think are so abhorrent. And like you know maybe my position on it is a bit more nuanced now. But at the time I was just like this is just too like this is too much. Mm. Like you know the idea that I was safe in London. I guess it's like you feel kind of entitled. Like yeah. a feeling of entitlement, and like Brexit really shook that. Like the idea that you know my dad came here as an immigrant, and he had loads of troubles, like trying to stay in the country, and like always, like almost being deported, and having a certificate of alien, and having to report to the police station every week, like all that kind of stuff, and that feeling so insecure. I never experienced because. I, had, I was born in Britain, I had my British passport, didn't have to worry about that stuff. And suddenly feeling like, oh my god, like, am I not welcome here anymore? Mm-hmm. I know that like, I haven't experienced like, face-to-face racism in the same way as a lot of people since Brexit. But just like that shift in thinking of like, do I really have a right to be here? Yeah. It's quite like... But it's, again, this is, again, it sounds... I don't, I don't mean to sound, it's not patronising, I don't yeah. come, But it's your awareness. 
as yeah. you get older, your, your awareness becomes wider. It, it's like, the best example is looking at a child. Like, when you're at school, your world's so small, but shit can, you still get so upset. I mean, being so upset that I have to do homework. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was like, that was a, such a burden. <laughs> then as you get older, your awareness, you start seeing the world wide, you're thinking, shit, there's more problems out there. Yeah. And this is, this is what your mind starts going for you. And then, as you get older, you're thinking, fuck, literally, that shit happens every day. Yeah. Yeah. But so, so to kind of, kind of, I don't know, come to some kind of peace with that, you have to start thinking, well, what can I change? What you have to worry about your own life. And so, just when people start having families, and their, their focus is on their family, yeah, making their families like that. But when you're in your twenties, because you've got no other concerns, yeah. your concern is the world. So you're so <laughs> constantly enraged about the world. Yeah, you're not really thinking about. People, people might say real life. What matters? You paying your bills, doing this, yeah. doing that. You're just starting out in the world of work. You're trying to forge your career, so that's your focus. Yeah, and that's all your energy. So you're thinking about yourself all the time and yourself in relation to everything else. Yeah, yeah. So you're pissed off about yeah, someone, this, this poor people in the world. But there's always been poor people in the world. Mm, yeah. And greater minds than ours have applied their minds to that problem <laughs> and still fucked it up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's not all on us. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> I suppose what I kind of kind of picked up on it is the internet doesn't make it any any easier, and also the fact that the news is pushing an agenda because it has to replicate itself because it has to make money. Yeah. So they keep pushing bad news, bad news, bad news, bad. But that's not just not just the world we live in. Yeah. Like every day, you can go out your door and see people doing good things all the time. Yeah. From people picking up kids from school to helping someone on the street, from someone pulling over. People do good shit all the time, but mm. good stuff is boring. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sell. It doesn't sell news. Good yeah. stuff is, it, it, yeah, it's it, it's not sexy. Yeah. But people want bad news. They want stabbings, murders, rapes, all this kind of stuff to make to kind of to kind of feel incensed about. But if yeah. I said to you the other day, uh, I gave I, I like this week I gave I come out of work. I had my money, but I had my McDonald's. I had my McDonald's. Right? I see a homeless guy. So I said, "This is enough. I'm skinny." But I said, "You will share my food with me." So I gave him my chips. Yeah. I had my burger, and I said, "Boom!" And we sat there, we had a little chat. I said, "These stories are not sexy. They're boring, though." Yeah. No one wants to hear that. No. Everyone thinks everyone thinks it's a bit. I don't mind a bit of that. But <laughs> maybe that's our next our next podcast. Nice thing. Nice thing. Nice thing. Okay, it's not what am I pissed off about this week, it's who. And that person is Boris Johnson. This man is so irresponsible. He's such an idiot. I even hate the fact that I'm giving him airtime. There was there were about five other things that I was potentially going to have as my top um, things that annoyed me this week, but he has to win. Because I have to just get this out about how disappointing it is that someone who is that highly educated, who holds such an important position in our government, is allowed to say the things he does. And the, the emphasis is on the allowed. Um, I'm just going to read a quote from... Um, what he said at a fringe event at the Tory party conference this week there's a group of UK business people actually, I don't know whether you've come across this, wonderful guys who, they literally have they've literally got a brilliant vision to turn CERT into the next with the help of municipality of CERT, into the next Dubai, the only thing they've got to do is clear the dead bodies away this is a city, sorry, in Libya. So since the conflict began, the Arab Spring, over 5,000 people have died there. 
sales in the past five, six years. Yeah, and the fact that he stands there and jokes. And he does joke because after he says that they just need to clear away the bodies, all the people in the audience go, ha, 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 ha. As if it's like the most... <laughs> that a Tory Yeah, that is a Tory laugh. And just to give it as well, it's a little bit more context. Um, in the past five years, some of his gaffes, and I'll go on to how appalling I think the term gaff is as well. Um, he has said, he called Obama part Kenyan with ancestral dislike of the UK. He described people from the Congo as having watermelon smiles. He calls Commonwealth citizens flag-waving piccaninnies. He suggested Papuan people are cannibals. And in the last one, obviously this week, he joked about clearing away bodies in Libya. Now, this is our foreign secretary, people, and goes on to the point that I was trying to make last week about why this podcast is important. No one is talking about how racist and xenophobic this man obviously is and how much power he has in our country to not just set agendas, but also move conversations and allow for casual racism and xenophobia to enter our debate, just as something which is, oh, just another gaffe. And the privilege involved in the word gaffe so gaff is what, for Boris, a joke that he makes, which is taken out of context, or something that he says which he doesn't necessarily mean too much about, but it's a bit of a joke. Like, how, why is he allowed to have this many gaffes? Boris Johnson. It's, it's like, you know, my, my dad came and said to me, like, oh, have you heard Johnson's latest gaff? And you're like, at what point do you stop calling him gaffes and just start calling him an asshole? Like, yeah. it's, not a, it's not like a, ooh, an accidental slip. It's like, he clearly thinks these things on some level, and, like... It's like Prince Philip saying the to those students, yeah. oh, you know, you don't want to stay here too long or you'll get slitty eyes. Like, it's treated as like, ha, 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 you know, hilarious eccentric royal. It's like the eccentric aristocrat gets to say whatever he wants, gets to be foreign secretary and meet people from all around the world when everyone knows that he's a racist, but no one will say that and the PM won't fire him because... She apparently is just constantly looking for ways to make herself look weaker. It's just like... Well, he's unsackable as well. The racist is unsackable. <laughs> so... Maybe that should just be our new name for Boris Johnson. Right. I'm going to be devil's advocate here, right? And take it from a, a different point of view. So, <clears throat> people who are... One of the current arguments at the moment that multiculturalism <clears throat> lacks a sense of humour. So we can't say what we want to say. You're, you're stopping me having the feeling of saying stuff like that. I can say that if I want to. It's a joke, I'm not being serious. Mm-hmm. So someone from the right would say, you sort of lack a sense of humour. He's, he's, he's not being serious. Can't you just take it as a joke? And maybe, maybe, maybe they've got a point. Maybe you are being too serious. What yeah. the people from Congo have got watermelon smiles? Yes, but, this, this is this <laughs> is this is this is the position of the right moment. So yeah. people say stuff like this, and maybe we lose we lose some of our argument, some of our power from the yeah. left because we take it so seriously. So automatically we get our backs up. We're saying you're you're this, you're that, you're this, and accusing, but they've won. Yeah, you've lost your temper. You've descended into a kind of theoretical debate about race and all this kind of stuff well, and I make you right he, yeah. there's, a, there's a lack of moral reflection on his part and I've just picked up on it just now that since so far in 2017 more than 100,000 people have lost their lives crossing from leaving 
Libya, Italy. Italy. Well, across yeah. Australia. Across Australia. Basically, half poor hiding they were. A hundred thousand. That's not in the news at all. It's just not in the news. Well, this is the thing. So I think when 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 um, Boris Johnson makes gaffes like this, mm. it kind of covers up the kind of role we played in destabilizing this region. Destabil just. It, it's, this is consistent with Western history. Yeah. We kind of destabilize the yeah, yeah, yeah. We make we, we, we make light of it. But yeah. back to my point, we're trying to say is that maybe when he makes these gaps, he's doing it on purpose because he's challenging you. But by doing that, you've kind of lost the argument because you yeah. take it so seriously. It's like you know, like oh yeah, you like the miserable feminist or whatever. Yeah. Like you can't take a joke. You're playing the race card, like whatever. But it, yeah, I think it's. Even though I've just read out some of the horrific things that he said, I think it's more the consequences of what he says, and those consequences being that there are no consequences, yeah. and the fact that he is foreign secretary, and I believe that people like him hold a responsibility. Mm. If you're elected democratically by the people, you are not to be racist. <laughs> you need to be a decent human being. And I don't think he is. I really don't. And I guess that comes from a little bit of a personal perspective there. But there's a responsibility. The thing is, though, the thing is, though in a way, he's saying what they're all thinking in the, like, our government is racist. Like, all our institutions are racist because our, this whole country is built partly on the premise that white people deserve like more privilege than anyone who isn't white like however that you like the state decides to define that so in a way the reason and not like the reason like Theresa May isn't turning around and being like that's racist is because she probably doesn't even see it as racist yeah. she probably thinks oh my god that's terrible that people are calling him racist like that's so terrible you know yeah, what I mean yeah. like the way that being a racist is worse than actually saying racist things like no one wants to put that into words because, or like for example, on the state program, like Nick Robinson is one of their main logical yeah, yeah. editors. This is the guy who, when Lee Rigby was murdered by two like nutters yeah. in whenever it was, 2013. Oh yeah. Um, he said on like the TV, oh yeah, it was done by two Muslim-looking men, and you're like there are. Billions of Muslims in the world, billions, and you are saying that they all look like we all know what he meant. He meant like a brown guy. That's literally all he meant. It's just, it's just unbelievable. But he's the person making the news. He's the person on the radio every day telling us what's happening in the world, as though he, like that is the authority. And so for them, like Boris Johnson saying, "Oh, let's clear the dead bodies away." I mean, it's a gaff. It's like, oh, it's a bit of a slip. It's a mistake, but it's not like. It's, it's, I think, right. So uh, th there's obviously issues there. Like, if you're an ethnic minority, you understand people talking code. There's codes. So even from like, <clears throat> from a young kid, I understood that there's a way of describing the police have a way of describing ethnic minorities. So as a black male, I'm an IC three. That's quite funny because I'm number three. So I I knew number one was a white person. So it was number two. A brown person. <laughs> I, I, I always understood there's a structure and people talking coded ways. Yeah. So Boris Johnson talking in coded ways, I know he's talking to his pals. We understand that as if it might, you understand he's talking to his pals. <clears throat> so sometimes, like I said, when I was young, I used to get more incensed by this, but now I say, I thought, yeah, he, he's doing it on purpose. He's not stupid. He's not a stupid guy. 
He went to a, a good school and he paid a lot of money for his education, right? So he's not stupid. He understands what he's doing. I just hate that there's no like responsibility taken for anything he says. No. I hate that he's allowed to say on Twitter after he said that about Libya, um, oh, people try to politicise what I'm saying. What? what? You're a politician! <laughs> he said that. Do you know what else he said that about? Oh, my God. If I'd seen him, I don't even know what I've done. He said after Grenfell Tower, he said people like David Lammy trying to politicise the situation. Oh, wow. How dare you? How dare you? platform to say that mm. how dare you? you oh but i think i think i think especially now with twitter and instagram people need to understand that words have consequences yes yes that's what you're saying it's talking in code yeah. like he can say oh they're trying to politicize it it's like we all know that everything that you say is political and you saying that is political because you're basically trying to erase them from the conversation yeah. but this is this is the thing you, you understand like i said it, it depends where you are in the structure to understand what what code this coded language, how it spoke, how it spoke. Trump's is an expert. Here. He speaks yes. to certain people at certain times using certain words and language, and we know we know that who he's speaking to. Even so my article calls it. She calls it politics. Politics. Those are. I'm not into politics. No, but you so know what? what? I was thinking there was a phase. I can't remember if it was when Theresa May first became prime minister, like around Christmas or something, when I think things were going reasonably not as shit as they are now. I don't really know. But everyone was accusing each other of playing politics, and I was like, well, "What are you doing? If not like, you're all play- that's your job to play politics. Like, why are you suddenly all coming out? like?" Politics is what you do, so why is this really like some kind of terrible accusation? And it was like they're trying to. Um... I think people, when, when people say that, they're trying to say you're being almost like Machiavellian, you're being underhand. Yes, yes, that's it. It's like trying to say, oh, they're being sneaky, yeah, they're being stabbed you in the back. And you, you can't, basically, they're trying to kind of caricaturize you as a modern politician. You're not true of your words. Yeah. You're using words yeah. to, to kind of obfuscate the truth. Like yeah. in some way or the other, but for me, see this, this thing about um, Boris Johnson and stuff like that. It ties into like the bigger, bigger speech, bigger thing about freedom of speech, it's the right yes, to say yeah. what you want. Now, be where, wherever you want to take this. So, for example, if you want to, do you have a right to offend people? So, someone like Boris Johnson, does he have a right to offend? That, that's a question because people do that. Does too. Boris Johnson have a right to so, offend? Yeah. Does he have the freedom? Does he have the freedom? Because, because, for example, no, no. Because foreign secretary, he's in government. Uh-huh. It's completely irresponsible. So this is so someone like Trump. So for example, he's offending people left, right, and centre because he says stuff that maybe certain people who are, have had that voice want him to say. So. He's appeasing some section of society that appeases. No, I guess no, I guess you're right. <laughs> like, I guess the people that do annoy me the most are the people like Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Michael Gove, Theresa May. Nigel they, Farage. Nigel Farage. <laughs> they pretend they're of the people and they use this platform for their free speech to say stuff which is going to be unpopular with certain groups. <laughs> but really, it's just highly divisive. It's highly divisive, it causes a lot of problems. Often it's racist, classist, xenophobic, sexist. sexist. But then there's a section of, there's a, sex, there's a size minority that say, well listen, for years you've still had it your way. You were telling me how bad I was. So, yeah. and you're telling yeah. me all the time, and now this, yeah. there's someone that's speaking about for my, on my behalf. So there's a lot of people, that, especially like white working class people, white working class men that think, yeah, listen, you, this guy's speaking my language now. Mm. For the last 30 years, 40 years are my lifetime. The lifetime of multiculturalism, my lifetime, it's been about women, blacks, 
gays, this and the other. Mm. And what about me? The privilege, about... the privilege of white privilege is not knowing your privilege. No, 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 but the point is as well, isn't it? If you're working class, if you're a white working class guy, you actually don't have that much privilege. No, yeah. Relative to people like Boris Johnson. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. So you, you, no, we, no. We, some, we have to make, make it say you can't homogenise white people. No. And this is this has been this has been part of the problem of white culture because it hasn't allowed white working class people to have their voice. We've assumed white people all white people struggle, all white people's problems are the same, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and what it makes me think of actually is the way that people are really quick to be like, white working class people are racist. <laughs> like they're racist and you know, that's like a problem that white working class people have. And it's like, well, white middle class people are racist, it's just they know how to say things in a way that won't get them being accused of being racist. Well, they got blamed they got blamed for Brexit, but we yeah. know it was middle class people living in Wiltshire being like, we don't want any of them over here. It's like, yeah, they're not gonna come in your thatched cottage. <laughs> you see, I think again when you're when you live in like London, in 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 the in, 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 in city, and like growing up here, my house, we were white. We, we all live in this shit. So if you're going to be racist, it's going to be it's going to be very uh, visceral because you're in it. So if someone call me you black cunt, you're this. It's going to be to my face. Do you know what I mean? It's going to be to my face, and that's 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 going to be the real. And that's that's been my experience. Yeah. It's, this is just real. This is real talk. It's not about. Yeah. When I come in, my house, we all live in this shit. Yeah. So we might all, all, all my peer group is a mixed group of Bangladeshis, white, black, and at various times, in various times, some called you know, you're a Paki this, you're a black cunt that, you're a white this. All this is, this is, this, this is real life. But that's what it's been like. And oh. so when it's been like, it's been visceral, it's been upfront. Yeah. But when you're white middle class, you're yeah. removed from that. Yeah. You don't live in this shit with me. Yeah. You live in a nice house away from me. So your struggle is not the same struggle. Yeah, yeah. And but like I said, for white working class people, if you there's been a whole discourse that's kind of kind of moved away from them and not, not allowed them to have their voice. Yeah. And when they have had their voice, people that spoke for them have been the National Front, they look fucking mental, don't they? <laughs> or the BNP, these people look fucking mental. Nigel crazy. Farage! No, but, Nigel Farage, no, he's no, quite no, like no, no, but when Nigel Farage comes on, he's part of the he's, See, when someone like Trump and Nigel Farage come along, they're of the kind of middle class ilk, but they're speaking against the establishment. Yeah. They're saying, fuck the establishment. Yeah, the establishment fucks you, but where for you? Where for your people? Even though I benefit from the establishment. Yeah, you know what someone said to me yesterday, a public school boy said to me yesterday, yeah, well, Nigel Farage, you've got to hand it to him. Like, he's been able to give the voice back to the white working classes that they haven't been able to have for themselves. This is the thing. I was just like, Listen, if I speak to all my crowd. Wow. I'll speak, speak to them. They'll tell me. They'll tell me. They, they, my mate, my mate, Will says to me that Trump, I mean Trump, Nigel Farage, top guy. He's a top guy. Uh, Tommy Robertson, top guy. Who's that? Uh, so Tommy Robertson was Excellent. a former former leader of the uh, English Defence League. Yeah. yeah. Um, massive like is anti-Islamist now. Boom boom whatever. But this is the thing. Like I, I get what you're saying about Boris Johnson. I I agree. I agree with you. However, now I'm. I, as sociologists now, we have to be aware of the nuance in this yeah. now, right? And so we have to see, like, who's he speaking for now? He's speaking to someone, and speaking to a group of people that they, they agree with him. Yeah. So we need to have a conversation with these people. At the moment, it's not about being angry. We need to speak to these people and say, listen, I, I get how you feel, mm-hmm. because you're using the same language I use to fight for my rights. Yeah. The rights of the language of victimhood, of my culture, yeah. of not having a voice. 
However, Boris Johnson, you need to understand your words have consequence. Yeah. You can't say what you want and expect it, expect it to sit there and then nothing happens. But no, but, but that is, I guess, you're, you're completely right and I totally agree with you. Mm. But I guess, I, I guess maybe more my point is that the only place you'll see people saying that Boris Johnson is racist is in a Guardian, Guardian column. Yeah. That is the only that place... Is, like, that it's, is the only place you hear or read about Boris Johnson yeah. actually being racist, xenophobic, yeah. very problematic for then, Britain. They're totally preaching to the choir because yeah, that's Guardian it. readers will be like, well, of course. You know, yeah. like, people who read The Guardian think they already know these things, and so they're like, well, yeah, I thought that too. But then I think, I think, and this is a genuine thing, if you speak to most people, if you said to say, Boris Johnson, listen, are you racist? If you not off the record, he'd say no. I don't think he believes he sees himself that way because I don't think most no, people. I don't think most people see themselves as racist in a classic sense. But then I ask one of the things that I'm trying to get people around me to think about is okay. You think you're liberally minded, believe in equality, don't like inequality. <laughs> How many people do you know that are minimum wage? How many people do you know or interact with on a personal level are black, brown, <laughs> Muslim, gay? Yeah. How many people do you actually know on the fringes of society? Okay, how many? None. Okay. In, in what, it, how do you ever get to enact your liberal values then? In what way do you ever get to set, get, ever get the opportunity to say that you believe in equality, that you believe in, in justice, basically? If you don't ever get that, then how do you get to own that Oh, I'm not racist. Yeah. Oh, I'm not reminded. If you never interact with these people, then how do you get? Why do you get to have that label? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I make you right. I make you right. I, um, it's trying to make, make people aware of like, just aware of this structure. Yeah, yeah. But on that note, so what's annoyed you this week? It's not that nothing's annoyed me, but I think the thing that has got me thinking the most is that. It's October, and October in the UK is Black History Month. When people wear like traditional dress mm. and talk about stuff, and there's usually kind of these meetings about black this or black that. But for me, again to clarify, I, I was part of that process as well as a, as, as a, as a grown-up. But for me now, Black History Month it means something different. I think you have to be. I think Black History Month should be a time of reflection and reflection not just by black people, by everyone. So one of the biggest kind of uh, retorts people always, uh, always ask me, well, why do you have Black History Month? Why don't you have White History Month? I think that's an important question. Yeah. I think if you ask that question, you have to answer it yourself. Well, why don't you have a White History Month? And get people to think about why the reasons why you're actually having a Black History Month. Why do, you have, why do we have a section of a month to kind of think about the kind of contribution by people? So it gets you to start thinking about the structure we're talking about, thinking about race in a different way. Yeah. But I also think Black History Month is kind of time to kind of like look at stuff differently, assess stuff differently. So one of the things like I, I always bang on about is slavery, because that's the kind of elephant in the room, slavery. Black people will always go bang on about slavery. And I think the kind of the way it kind of is represented to people is a very kind of two-dimensional way. It's always representing the way black people are still passive victims in this. So Europeans come to Africa, pick up the slaves, and then slave trade begins. Now we all know humans are more sophisticated than that. No human interaction is that kind of bilateral. 
I'll just give up my arms. It, it's not like that. So if you kind of get into the nuance of it all, you understand that the kind of that the idea of slavery was a kind of complex interaction between <clears throat> Africans and Europeans playing 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 off each other. So Africans thought they could manipulate Europeans to give them weapons. So stronger African tribes would sell other African tribes into slavery for guns to over to oppress other African tribes. Europeans thought, well, this is a good deal because we're getting free labour. So this is a kind of complex interaction. It's not as straightforward as good and evil because those things don't matter. They're not real terms. Mm-hmm. Human beings will try to get one over one another, <clears throat> to manipulate one another. This was the nature of slavery. So this is what I'm trying to understand. It's a more nuanced understanding of things like this. So once you have a more nuanced understanding of this, you're trying to start thinking, right, okay, so how does slavery... So if we look at slavery this way, we have to see it differently now. So slavery is an integral part of European culture. It's part of our history. Without slavery, you have no... You don't have the massive influx of money that comes in to finance the Enlightenment. The kind of the, the high culture, high arts. You don't have the massive money. You don't have you don't have the kind of institution to, find, to function the city. So, one of the kind of big terms that kind of comes out of the slave trade and the, the amount of money that's being generated was the idea. How do you quantify this? So you have a key key term: the time value of money. How much money increases over time? Without this financial concept, you don't have the modern city. So this is a kind of how important this kind of slave trade is to our culture, to us. Mm-hmm. Me, you, everyone in this room. So you don't. Without this, you don't have the Enlightenment. Without the Enlightenment, you don't have the Industrial Revolution. You don't have these things that make us who we are. Mm-hmm. So when I say we talk about the slave, when Black History Month comes, you don't talk about the slave trade as in victimhood. You talk about it as in an integral part of European culture, because on the what it made us who we are. Well, I think also what you were saying earlier about. Um, this thing of you know we can exercise our guilt if like when we did the history it was like you know two pages in a history book and the thing you look at is like pictures of slave ships and how people attacked <laughs> slave ships and how you know, it was white people going over there like buying taking whatever slaves taking them to the Caribbean and you know we didn't talk about the money they made we didn't talk about well why did abolition happen all we talked about then was and then these great white people abolished slavery and everything was fine we didn't even do that at my school we didn't even we didn't even talk about yeah. britain's um impacts on africa and slave trade well, and the americas you know the way we talk about america like, oh america's so racist it's like yeah why <laughs> because it was our empire but also the thing about you know, so uh, UCL have done this research lately where they looked at where the money from the slave trade ended Catherine up Hall. in Britain, Catherine, Catherine Hall and David Obasoga. Um, and they looked at, so basically when they abolished slavery, it was going to cause mayhem politically because who wants to give up their cash cow of free labour making a really valuable product? Like, no one's going to do that voluntarily. So the government said, okay, well, the way we'll do it is, is we will pay people what we think their slaves are worth. So it's huge, it's the biggest compensation ever paid by the British government. And they, this team of researchers went back into the records and looked at who got the money. And, you know, it's 
every British institution you can think of, every arts institution, civil society, science, everything that our country is proud of is funded by the labour of long-dead slaves. And they also, you know, it wasn't just the big institutions. It was stuff like, you know, some widower from North Yorkshire who, like, you know, wouldn't be able to survive with her children without the money that came from their one slave that they'd inherited from, you know, her father or something. Like, they had to give her £63.50 because otherwise, you know, how would she be able to survive without the loss of that slave? You know, none of the compensation goes back to where the labour came from. It was all given to individuals and institutions here. And that's something we don't think about ever, that all our wealth and privilege is based on that. But I think, I think what you're saying, Saskia, I, I agree, like, it's trying to think of it in a more, in a more holistic way, of trying to draw it in from the, from the outside and put it in, in, integral into our history to understand it of who we are. For example, the, the kind of modern notions of race kind kind that we have today comes straight out of slavery. Yeah. Now to justify a slave trade by the Europeans, now Europeans had made slavery amongst themselves illegal because the Bible condemned it. So it wasn't, we, they had arrived at a philosophical and a moral kind of place that it was something they couldn't do. So, so therefore to justify slavery against other people, because your book doesn't permit that, you have to create myths around these people to justify, to mentally make yourself okay with it. Because as a human being, we are, we are upset by suffering. So, so when we do that, we have to de dehumanize and debase someone to make it okay, to make it for us to accept this. So we create myths, and these myths stay with us today. Yeah. So for example, one of the kind of classic myths, and like I said, black people fall for these myths as well. All black people are great dancers, we're dancers, good dancers. Black people, they're very proud about their dancing. Now, that's a myth drawn from slavery. Now, what they used to do, when they used to put black people on ships, for the men to stop them dying is to make them dance, beat them to dance, just to keep them moving so you don't, their, their limbs don't atrophy because mm -hmm. they're on the ship for months. Mm -hmm. But this becomes a myth. Embedded mm -hmm. out of your good dancers, your great dancers. We need to kind of break our mind. We use Black History Month to kind of critically assess stuff and move past this now. Because yeah, I wonder if, I'm just thinking about other myths about black people. I wonder if the famous Zong case, so when, um, the ship captain, there was a massive storm, he was um, taking lots of slaves um, and uh, he had to throw all the slaves off the boat because there wasn't enough... Uh, Is it good insurance that he wanted? Yeah, 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 he wanted to claim insurance and all the slaves died. Yeah, it's a really horrible story. Nice. Did um, he get his insurance? No, Lord Mansfield ruled against it. Yeah. Um, so I think it was actually that there was a, a sickness came on the ship and he threw all the slaves off, killed them. And I'm just wondering, I wonder if that somehow originates when black people can't swim. Well, it's insane. So like, this is the thing. Yeah, this is the thing that I Oh my God. I because he can't swim. And this, this is, these things are so perpetual. It's so, they're so ingrained in people's heads. So yeah, my friend the other day came to me and said, T, aren't your bones heavier than me at mine? What? So those people think that's people, people really, people really, really, really people believe say that this stuff. To me. Or, but this is the, like I said, Black History Month should be a time now where we critically assess and start to kind of getting rid of these things. So this is the thing, but these kind of stereotypes, these myths are so deep, so ingrained in people's heads. Mm -hmm. So for example, I'll give you an example. Um, I was watching Inhumans, this is a, a new Marvel superhero thing yeah, yeah. the other day. Now, in Inhumans, it's a group of people, a royal family, three white people, two ethnic minorities. 
Now, the black character is strong, because we are all strong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's childlike, impetuous, irrational, likes fighting, and this is the best bit, he can't swim. How did he even get that in? This, this is that's like a joke. Wow, nice. As in for real. There's not no, 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 but as in like, is, is it kind of a like, oh, no, 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 this is a, this is a, a deadly serious, is he afraid of water? He gets into water, he starts sinking. I, I, I couldn't, this is 2017, I, I think to myself, are you sort of for real? Someone paid you money up front to develop a TV show where you've done all this six stereotypes, and this is the best bit, so he's, the black character's there, the oriental character is logical, cold, good at maths, and does martial arts. Wow. Oh. The thing is, I, in a way, am surprised that you're surprised, because I hate seeing Hollywood films, because every time you watch it, you're like, for fuck's sake. Like, Okay, you know, I like Harry Potter, wasn't crazy about the films, but I went to see the Fantastic Beast film, and it's literally a colonial story, like, it's really entertaining, but it's like, this white guy goes to America in the 20s, and in New York in the 20s, there were no black people! Where were all the black people? Like, no, so there were three times you have black people in the film. At the beginning, he gets off the boat, and there's a black family next to the boat, and then the Minister for Magic in New York is Beyonce. <laughs> like, she's a very pale-skinned black woman yeah, yeah. with, like, blonde curls coming yeah, out yeah. behind her big hat. Yeah. Oh, and there's, like, one other black character. Oh, she's an evil psychiatric nurse, basically, which, yeah, I know that's not a trope at all. It was just like, wow. So... But like you have to be, you have to sort of be forgiving of people that live in spaces which are pretty monocultural. So they, so people only come across other white people when they see black, brown people represented in that way. Represented in that yeah. way. That's all they see. So I mean, and it was the same for women in the film. But it was like, okay, I'm, I'm so used to sexism. I expect that, but like that kind of, and also again, like you know, they have the sort of oriental gentlemen sort of wandering around in little like Chinaman hats and you're like wait sorry you're in the Minister for Magic all the Americans are wearing suits but like what oh I'm so so frustrating to watch obviously we know this goes on and this is a consistent theme but what upsets me like I said it's 2017 like we're way into the 21st century and I'm still having to deal with tropes that are essentially essentially like almost not even medieval, but from the kind of late medieval period. Yeah. Like you're talking to me like, like I'm still a savage. Mm. And like I said, Black History Month is an opportunity now for everyone to kind of question these things. Mm. Black, white, it doesn't matter who you are. Even when we're talking about Islam now, yeah. because this is the thing, it's about to kind of question these things and say, well, is it really this way? Yeah. Are people really like this? And try to move the move debate, move the debate forward because at the moment. Especially because I suppose I'm kind of ultra sensitive to this because I research the far right. I'm seeing the kind of resurgence of views <clears throat> of racial doctrines that are very extreme in the, in the sense of racial classification, the kind of hierarchy. Again, bringing about this idea that whites are superior yeah. and then you can work your way down the list. Yeah. But this is something that I was, I've also been thinking a lot with leaving the European Union is that. You know the things that are problematic about the European Union are stuff like it's basically building a wall around Europe, creating a new empire within the kind of white enough countries, leaving out Turkey, you know, which is the Muslim country. This kind of terror of. 
African migrants like coming in their hordes to the extent that we literally leave people to drown in the Mediterranean yeah. rather than like if it were the other way around like can you like it's, like, it's, imagine, beyond, yeah. it's beyond imagination but yeah so like in a way Europe is like an incredibly flawed project in that way so it's like yeah open borders so long as you are part of the club already I guess the trouble with Brexit is it's like oh no we don't want to be part of that club because that's too open like we're an island nation like don't mention the fact that we had a navy that used to just do whatever the fuck it wanted on any sea it wanted to do just no we need our borders we need to put them up and you know shut the gate you know like all that stuff again is based on those ideas but, that somehow you're bringing impurities in but you see, I, 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 at the moment, I, the, the difference is in 2017, there's a lot of information out there, right? And one of the piece of information that floats around is a, a, key, a key demographic piece of information that Europeans are declining. Europeans are, are declining people. They, they have less kids. They're an aging population. Africa, which is the second largest, uh, po- second largest continent in the world and the second most populous continent in the world, has the youngest demographic in the world, but having more kids. But do you really think, like, and so, when people like Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, like, saying the stuff that they say about our, our Britishness, do you really think they're thinking about, we need to protect our... There is a fear. Yeah, of course they're there, thinking about There is about a fear. There is a, this fear is a consistent thing. And it, well, this fear ties into slavery as well, because people think, what, what have black people got into power? Would they do the same thing to us? I mean, as the classic example, I don't know, this just popped into my head, but I used to work at the Catholic Church. And the way racism works in the Catholic Church is fascinating because it's declining in Europe. Like Catholicism was born in the heart of civilization in Rome, but it's declining in Europe. And you know there are far fewer white people going to church, except unless you count Polish people. But you know they're still Eastern Europeans. Um, and so there's this big fear in the church around, you know, in London particularly, the Catholic Church is booming because of Eastern Europeans, but also it's huge. Like, loads of people from African countries are Catholic because of colonialization, etc. Um, so the most Catholics are in Africa and South America. And we've just had, you know, we've got a South American Pope at the moment, and that's shocking. The idea of a black Pope, would it would never, I cannot imagine that happening in a million years, because that would just horrify people. And you think, like, the Catholic Church has got some pretty regressive views. Even the Catholic Church thinks, oh, my God, but those Africans, like, they're really regressive. They're basically savages. And they would never say that. But it's fairly clear from the way black people are represented in the church and the way, you know, the white priests breathe the black priests and all that kind of stuff, like... It's, like I said, I think, like I said, I think these conversations are helpful and handy, and this is what Black History Month should be about, about questioning these things and thinking, well, where are we going? Why do these things exist? Why do people still view me this way? What I'm trying to say is there's a whole diversity of black people yeah. and I find young kids are being, they pull themselves to this stereotype yeah. and not letting themselves that, they're not giving themselves the opportunity. Say they want to be a lawyer or be a bit geeky or to express themselves in a way that they do want to. Do a PhD in the far right <laughs> <laughs> or read comics or just be themselves to yeah. genuinely be yeah. themselves yeah. you grow up in a council flat you need to be a certain way to survive yeah. but you don't have to be that way it doesn't have to be that way so we can use Black History Month to kind of be critically assess these situations and free up space for people to be themselves so you might find the next President Obama can be himself the next David Lammy these people they're not having to conform to these stereotypes anymore. yeah 
But it's a, to do that, we have to question that and have those conversations. To we have to be allowed to question it as well. <laughs> and we can't forget about structure. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Saskia, Chantel and Tiso. We'll be back every week with a new episode. So don't forget to subscribe.